I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can save up to 75% on the cover price. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Or you can unlock our entire online archive for free for 24 hours. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash open. Thank you very much. Uh, Mary Kay suggested I think about Adam and Eve. That gave me pause for thought. Um, And it's surprising if you let something settle how it might bring you a little bit further on. Anyway, uh, thanks to her. And thank you all for coming out tonight. Sit back, close your eyes. Anyway, um, don't fall asleep. A couple of weeks ago, the Pope described fake news as being like the strategy employed by the crafty serpent in the book of Genesis. The strategy of this skilled father of lies, he said, in a statement aimed at both Trump and the purveyors of social media, is precisely mimicry, that sly and dangerous form of seduction that worms its way into the heart with false and alluring arguments. Ideas of mimicry and seduction certainly wormed their way into the story of Adam and Eve over the centuries, but they're not in the original version. If even the Pope misuses the word seduction in this context, it's worth looking for the source. He got it from the first letter from St. Paul to Timothy, as translated in the late late 4th century by St. Jerome, whose Latin Vulgate version survived to become the Bible of the Catholic Church more than a thousand years later. This passage was often used to justify the bar on women priests. I suffer not a woman to teach nor to use authority over the man, but to be in silence, because Adam non est seductus was not seduced, but the woman being seduced, mulier autem seducta, was in the transgression." Except it didn't say this. It wasn't even written by St. Paul. The letter to Timothy is not inconsistent with Paul's views on women as expressed elsewhere, but secular commentators now think it was written later, and even this pseudo-Paul did not say that Eve had been seduced. This fake letter was fakely translated by fake old St. Jerome and corrected in later versions to the more accurate deceived among liberal Christians, there is also a, there is a sadness about St. Paul, a feeling that were it not for his letters, they might all be reciting the Beatitudes and fighting for justice in the third world. St. Paul's letters are the least canonical in the canon and the most worldly. It was from his letter to the Romans that Augustine derived his concept of original sin. And it was St. Paul who insisted that women take second place in the church. The person writing to Timothy, however, was not even St. Paul, but someone less important and more distant from the life of Christ. The Pope's claim to authority 
is corrupted by a repeatedly corrupted text, as if there were a true version somewhere which would make us all good. For non-believers, the question is moot. The history of gender relations was surely not undone by the single word seduced, with its implication that women cannot become priests because they are prone not just to disobedience or theological error, but also to flirting with animals, in this case a snake. Jerome was an accomplished linguist and he took for his transla- he drew from his translation from older Latin and also Greek versions as well as from the original Hebrew, which presents several difficulties, the absence of adverbs and of punctuation, the very ancient nature of the text. There were many opportunities for error, but he only took a few. Jerome's interventions were both catastrophic and telling. He changed Christ's brothers and sisters to cousins, for example, a tweak which facilitated the retroactive virginity of Mary, and this doctrine endured long after the translation was corrected. Genesis is a beautiful piece of writing, part poem, part folktale. It's hard not to fall victim to the idea that here is something pure which has been dirtied by celibates and misogynists to the subsequent ruin of mankind, as though there, as though there was such a thing as an original Edenic text in which man and woman were equal and no one or nothing was to blame. And for, for the first 66 lines of the Bible, this balance does seem to exist. Then Adam points the finger, says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree. And God curses her into loving him anyway. <laughs> the story of the fall is one of the most enduring stories we have, and it is never fair. You could use it as a template for a certain kind of novel, put a choice in there, tip the balance, make the consequences so disproportionate we doubt our sense of cause and effect, make them suffer, make them into better human beings. Visually, the narrative is brilliantly successful for being so easy to hold within a single frame. There's nothing static about the way the viewer sees an image of the first couple considering fruit. It's a moment of great tension, and they're wearing no clothes. So to the rules for writing a successful fiction, we might add, pretend that it's not about sex. Make the world symbolic. Expand all the asymmetries. Here are two human beings who are slightly, but perhaps disastrously, anatomically different. She likes something long. He likes something round. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) The story is a riddle about authority and predestination that has survived the theological palaver of generations because, simple to the point of transparency, it is also impenetrably self-enclosed. It's held in a brilliant web of balance and contradiction by a few hundred words. So it's worth looking at those words and what they actually mean. So just to be clear, there was no seduction. There was no devil, nor any mention of Satan, who was at this stage an unimportant figure. 
Although he played a sporadic role in the torment of Job or in the temptation of Christ in the desert, Satan was not a mythical force before the bestiary of revelations, and the rebellious Lucifer was some other angel until Milton came along. The idea of a great battle between forces of light and darkness didn't get going until early Christian times, possibly because this small and persecuted sect needed to find a great spiritual enemy to pit themselves against. So the creature in Genesis was just a snake. And though he was crafty, he didn't seduce, nor did he tempt Eve. His last word mean, te- term means to test, and it's used only once in Genesis. And rarely in the Old Testament, when God tests Abraham, requiring the sacrifice of his son Isaac. So Eve didn't tempt Adam either, nor was he seduced by her nakedness. There is, in fact, very little sex in the story. Our readings of it are all subtext, all interpretation, all error. The churches of my Irish Catholic childhood had no images of Eden. The idea that man was once born without sin had shrunk to the pinpoint of the Virgin Mary's conception and there was no nakedness on display with or without fig leaves apart from the stripped and bloodied figure of the crucified Christ. Why is Jesus wearing a nappy, a child asked once, quite loudly. This is not a question you could get away with after the age of four. Nor were you encouraged to wonder if the figure depicted on the cross was dead or still alive. I was in my 30s before I realised the answer to a question I'd found impossible, perhaps even blasphemous, to construct. Yes, he was dead, and we were truly, abjectly fallen. There was no imagining any other state. The story of Adam and Eve, by contrast, is an invitation to childhood curiosity. The question of whether they had belly buttons has occupied both great minds and small. (laughs) They're not just naked, their story is about nakedness, and the idea puzzling to an infant that we should hide our bodies from view. Whether they had sex in the garden, and if so, what it was like, these are proper theological concerns. In fact, their story is also about curiosity, and it doesn't end well. Almost before we know what the question is, we have received a catastrophic sequence of answers. Shame, exile, suffering, death itself. When, because I say so fails to work, God must, like an Irish mother, resort to the fully tragic, because all men must die. (laughs) So now you know. No wonder we tried to get back to the moment before the question started to form. We tried to imagine what it was like to live without the knowledge that we are naked and what that nakedness implies. Adam and Eve are both naked and they felt no shame. The word naked is a translation of the Hebrew erum, which is used to describe a state of being stripped or vulnerable and it's without sexual connotation. As for no shame, Jerome, in his translation into the Latin Vulgate, uses et non erubis gebant, implying that Adam and Eve did not blush, which is sweet for Jerome. It suggests a moment of virginal self-consciousness full of possibility. It also reflects Jerome's skill as a linguist. The original Hebrew bosh comes from a primitive root to pale, 
and it's here used reflexively, and they were not ashamed before one another. In the rest of the Old Testament, Bosch is used in contexts that involve feeling confounded or disgraced, but it's rarely linked to ideas of impurity and abomination. When it comes to sex, the Old Testament is mostly worried about marrying out. Other Latin translations settled on the stronger pudere, a term for shame, which conveys bashfulness as well as a sense of decency. Pudor contains the idea of being caught out, but it also had social and ethical connotations. It was, for the Romans, a manly difficulty, not something a slave could ever experience. A woman's honour was usually limited to the sexually, to sexual respectability, and this was referred to by the more limited form pudicitia. Somebody's going to kill me over my Latin pronunciation, but later, please. Pudicitia. The, the concept conveyed by the word pudor suffered a narrowing of meaning over time, becoming more sexualized and specific. By the 17th century, the root had yielded pudenda, meaning genitals, usually female. So this is where the general shame of nakedness landed and got stuck. The castrated horror that is the female form may provoke man's impulse to point, jeer or debase, But as a psychoanalytical parable, it feels a little reductive here. In English, shame indicates a kind of feeling bad, ostensibly about what you've done, but more possibly about what you are. Toxic shame is a term in popular psychology for unbearable feelings of worthlessness that flood an infant when abandoned or alone. Called out by God, Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. His nakedness, Aram, implies vulnerability. Perhaps Adam and Eve hid from God, not because they were suddenly prudish, nor because their disobedience had been found out, but because they realized their fragility and insignificance. They were exposed not as sexual beings, but as mortal ones. Jerome, quite rightly, uses a double translation for the line, In that day, so where you shall eat of it, you shall die the death, as opposed to the other thing. You shall die the death. This is what they bring into the world and the knowledge they gain. So early Christianography showed Adam as already rotting, or the tree of knowledge, later here, as a tree of bones. Later depictions gave their figures weight, volume and personality and their drama feels as a result more human and engaging but it wasn't until the Renaissance discovered a nostalgia for classical Greece that they were depicted as idealised or majestic nudes. Impossible to keep lust out of Eden even though it had not been invented yet. In it comes like a snake into the garden because the reader is also one of the fallen and can't imagine what it is to love without transgression or taboo. And this makes the story both clear and unimaginable, open and inaccessible. We cannot know what it was like not to know. But know what? Know what? Excluded from their state of innocence, we're all turned voyeur.
Milton was blind when he wrote the devil's envious lines in Paradise Lost. Sight hateful, sight tormenting. Thus these two, emparadised in one another's arms, the happier Eden, shall enjoy their fill of bliss on bliss. Milton gave the pair a bower. Augustine of Hippo, writing in the late 4th century, said that Adam and Eve coupled in the open because they were unashamed, though who, you might ask, was there to see. The serpent promises Eve that when she eats the apple, her eyes will be opened. It seems, however, that they're quite open enough already. Eve looks at the tree, sees that the apple is not just good to eat, but also desirable to make one wise. The Hebrew for desire here is the same as that for covet. To see is already to want. To want is already to know that you want. Knowledge of the tree enters Eve through her eyes before the knowledge of good and evil, whatever that is, enters through her mouth. The poetry of Genesis is always getting ahead of itself. The odd phrasing, desirable to make one wise, is an example of the text creating something from nothing, pulling itself up by its own bootstraps. Augustine's attempt to get behind this, to imagine what it might be like to have pre-lapsarian sex, is like trying to take the, is like trying to take hunger out of our experience of food. According to him, sex in the garden was entirely voluntary and Adam's erection was an action deliberate as lifting a hand. This was an odd theory and nice in its way. The presence of a baculum or penis bone makes it a reality in some animal species, and the Daily Mail got a bit shouty a few years ago when a rabbi suggested it was this bone that had been taken out of Adam and not an extra rib. (laughs) Old fake news. Augustine's ideal of voluntary desire is contradictory in a way that's hard to describe. It begs the question of where desire, or more properly, arousal, comes from and how it begins. What would sex be like with no sense of taboo? One answer is that sex without shame sounds a lot like sex. Another is that sex without shame would be pretty boring stuff. A third might be that sex moves us through a series of hugely interesting transgressive propositions to a less shame-bound place the happier Eden of conjugal bliss. According to Augustine, our pure affections become disobedient because wounded wounded by the fall. The uncontrolled or spontaneous nature of desire is both proof of and penalty for Adam and Eve's sin. The fact that mankind was subject to its vagaries was a sign that this sin did not die with them, but ran through us all still like three big letters through a stick of rock. S-I-N. The problem of concupiscence was also spiritual, but it lapsed repeatedly to the libidinal, partly because of the method of transmission. Babies were made bad by the pleasure that made babies. This highly contagious idea became so central to Christian thought that it's worth noting the anxiety about performance and arousal that underlies it. This wasn't just a Catholic position or a Catholic problem. Luther and Calvin were both proponents of original sin. And in 1563, the founding articles of the Church of England stated that it was the fault and corruption of the nature of every man and the resulting lust is an infection of nature.
It's a long way from talk of infection to the benign modern Anglican view that the story of Adam and Eve is about free will and the choices that face us all in our daily lives. There's a long humanist tradition in which Adam and Eve were made better by the fall, not worse, that this was God's plan all along. Without Adam, there can be no redemption in Christ. For fundamentalist churches, this isn't just a metaphor. The story of the fall has to be as true as the story of the resurrection and as historical. In 2017, a Gallup poll found that 38% of Americans believe that humans were created by God in their present form within the last 10,000 years. The Catholic Church agrees A little surprisingly, not because salvation must be real or transubstantiation must be by definition real, but because of the doctrine of original sin. According to the Catechism, Genesis 3 uses figurative language but affirms a primeval event, a deed that took place at the beginning of the history of man. Augustine and Jerome wrote at a time when Christianity was shifting from a small sect to the official faith of the Roman Empire, and it may be that their sexual pessimism was useful to the new authorities. A penitential population is also a compliant one. Their asceticism wasn't new. Jerome's can be traced back to the pagan Stoics. According to Seneca, nothing is more depraved than to love one's spouse as if she were an adulteress. This line is reassigned to Sextus, then requoted by Jerome as, anyone who is too passionate a lover of his wife is an adulterer. (laughs) These views were opposed by their contemporaries, and no wonder they dealt in such impossibilities. There's more here than the uh, the impulse to shout whore at some nice woman mid-coitus. There's more than projection and splitting, idealization and demonization, more than anxiety about soiling. There is an anguished call for the end to wanting, for an end to wanting, and a yearning for a love that will stay still. Among early Christians, celibacy was seen as a kind of freedom, especially for women, and the fact that it's not valued in modern Western society doesn't mean that the puzzle of arousal has been solved. Needing something when it's not there needing something when it is there, the way the body gets ahead of itself sometimes and has to find or create what it wants. There are so many ways in which this can go wrong. Male arousal in particular is now courted and encouraged on a massive scale, and yet we're still no closer to an answer about what men get when they get turned on. Perhaps because it's already an external event, for men, the tendency is to externalize it further, to turn the world into a living mirror where I want means she is desirable and I am needy means she is to blame. Or perhaps this isn't the way it works. There's no way for me to know. The writings of Jerome were separating with misogyny. But his gloss on Genesis can be quite beautiful. In Jerome's Hebrew questions on Genesis, translated by C.T.R. Hayward, he wonders, what's the best word for the quality of the wind in Eden when God walked there in the afternoon? He decides on Theodosian's Greek, which conveys the coolness of the breeze that blows when the noonday heat is past. So it must have been deliberate 
when he moved Adam from Eve's side as she ate the apple. Jerome takes the phrase with her out of the line she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Though this sleight of hand was corrected by the time Milton came to read the Bible, the idea had really taken hold and in Paradise Lost, Eve was alone when she met the serpent. Her decision to just leave Adam and go off by herself for a while is not dissimilar to the moment in a horror film when a character says, you stay here, I'll go and see what's outside. (laughs) In fact, Milton separates the pair from the beginning. The first face Eve sees is not Adam's, but her own. Newly created, she wanders off to find her reflection in a clear, smooth lake that seemed to me another sky. So the question and response we call the temptation of Eve... In that, in that question and response, the snake repeats God's and then Eve's sentences and then distorts them just with a question mark. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden or a negative? You will not certainly die. Eve becomes in a, becomes enclosed in a circular exchange with her own words. In medi- many medieval images, the serpent bears the face of Eve, acting as an enthralling, ghastly reflection, and indeed later again. This phallic Eve reminds us of the less spooky but equally phallic rib. Hello, rib. (laughs) Which has caused generations of children and philosophers to run a counting hand down their sides. The choice of bone sadly, is most likely a remnant from an earlier myth that played on the double meaning of T in Sumerian, the noun rib and the verb to make live. The fact that we find the choice of bone both odd and satisfying could be used as another rule for writing enduring fiction. Your story must contain the remnants of former drafts whose original meaning is now lost, which make an odd kind of sense. Themes of separation and similarity run through Genesis. The poetry repeatedly splits and rejoins in a kind of meiosis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is already a double thing, a pair of opposites. Biblical poetry makes great use of merisms, which are compound terms like high and low or black and white. They're not always contradictions. To have and to hold is an example of a legal merism, but they form between them a single idea. When on the first day God created the heavens and the earth, the words are separate and combined. Good and evil is also a merism. You might translate it as morality or the moral difference between one action and another. So too, evening and, mor- evening and morning are a merism, for one day. On the first day, God made a day. Then he called the work of making a day a day's work. It's a pun that opens from the center of itself. The job of Genesis is to pull something out of nothing, to turn the sentence inside out. On the second day, God divided the waters from the waters, turning sameness into symmetry, giving us the waters above and the waters below. And this is already a little unbalanced because the clouds, as we know, are not the same as the sea. 
With the separation of dry land, the symmetry turns into opposition, after which we have the big light of the sun and the small light of the moon, the creatures of the air and those under the sea. Finally, let us make man in our image, he says, another doubling, resulting in something that is the same but crucially different. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. This is the last piece of doubling in a long week of it, after which God rests. Then we hear the story of mankind's creation all over again. This time, he's made out of dust. So the first highly poetic account of creation in Genesis with its beautiful failing symmetries is considered the more recent, and the second, the one with the apple and the dust and the snake, is much older. The gap between the two allows in the potentially heretical views of the pre-Adamites who suggested that creation took place in two phases. Mankind in general is created first, followed by our own special forebears, Adam and Eve. This became an excuse for slavery and fuel for Voltaire, who is only ever racist and anti-Semitic for sardonic effect. It did not, however, spawn the still thriving tradition of misogynistic commentary. Male and female, he created them. At this stage in the story, remains hopeful and unbroken. The second telling of the creation happens on a more human scale, but the splitting and mirroring are also there, sometimes within a single word. The word for dust and that for Adam or man are a near pun. Like God, Adam becomes a master of distinctions. He separates domestic animals from the beasts of the field. This categorization is also an exclusion one for which the serpent, who is the most subtle of beasts, will have his revenge. Perhaps this is what was happening all along. God and then Adam push everything else away until it is clear Adam is alone and none fit to help him. This is a problem. The answer to it can't come from outside, the place of everything else, but only from inside. So out of Adam comes Eve, the same as him but different, and when he sees her, Adam sings an ecstatic poem of separation and reunion. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she is taken out of man. This is why, as the King James Bible has it, a man shall cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. Surely the best use of the word cleave, which means both to join together and split apart from different roots, but anyway. Neither fusion nor repetition can hold together this expanding sequence of separations. It ends in estrangement of God from human, man from woman, of flesh from flesh, bone from bone, and so it comes. The final act of distinction, which happens when he turns and blames, not me, her, It might have been read as a story about human betrayal. Instead, for centuries, it was taken literally. It was her fault. Woman was to blame for the fact that mankind must toil, suffer, and die. Of course she was. So misogyny was a moral position, or a spiritual position, actually. It was uh, seen as a natural instead of a disordered view. Woman, according to Thomas Aquinas, is a vir occasionatus, a defective or mutilated man. This he got from Aristotle, but he used it to explain why Eve was created second from a crooked bone 
She was made to fall. To be fair, Adam also blames God a little. The woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Adam likes it, acts like a child, a toddler who blames his sister or his shoe or his own foot, perhaps, because to be less than perfect is unbearable. And besides, God is very big now. The whole thing was a trap, a plot, a conundrum about free will. It seems people only believe the story in order to point out how unfair it all is. This is the way Adam and Eve played out on Twitter today. God may have wanted to keep Adam and Eve innocent, says a woman called Jamie, a Trump-hating conservative from Tennessee, but he still gave them free will, which is why Eve ate the shit out of that apple and her nakedness got Adam to agree. It's a heresy, as we now know. (laughs) Meanwhile, in Johannesburg, A young man asks, is it ever considered that it wasn't the woman's fault, that it was the serpent, the devil, who coerced them? And his online friend, Victoria, weighs in with, didn't he already know they'd eat the fruit anyway? The questions raised are familiar for being so ancient, but because they come from random believers, it's easier to see how entangled people become in their own riddles about authority. They don't have to believe in this God who is so unfair, but they do anyway. The wound of his omniscience is deeply felt. Adam and Eve were stooges. The story was over before it began. It swallows its own tail. There is some finger-wagging about disobedience, but also a fretfulness about the authority of the text itself. If God said to Adam and Eve, for in the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die, why didn't they die that day? Meanwhile, Nathan, Trump's supporter and Mormon, moves towards Milton's humanism, When he says, has anyone ever had the thought that Adam and Eve would never have had children in the Garden of Eden and Eve figured this out first by her conversation with the serpent and this was all part of God's plan for us. Eve was one of the most brave people ever to have lived. It's easy to see why the idea of paradise should linger in America, a country once considered a kind of Eden populated by naked human beings. A good proportion of these online opinions come from Africa, where similar myths obtain. These commentators use the story to make big statements about the natural order, about a woman's proper place, or the wrongness of homosexuality. It was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. But there's also a preoccupation from both Muslim and Christian with the colour of Adam's skin. Many come online to say that Adam was black, the colour of the dust from which he was formed. And this argument feels quite modern for, for creationists because many of the authors of the posts are themselves black. It can also be displaced in a discussion about, the, about equality that he is the best inheritance of the story of the fall. Exile from Eden is the final separation Adam and Eve become part of the everything else that's beyond the circumference of the garden. According to God, man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and their new power must be met with matching difficulty. Adam is condemned to work the ground from which he was first taken. As for Eve, fake old Jerome 
curses her with a double dose of subservience. And thou shalt be under thy husband's power, and he shall have dominion over thee. This is more accurately rendered as, your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This word desire, also used in the Song of Songs, may be the first sexual word in the Bible. Eve is doomed to a desire for her husband, the constantly unforeseen consequences of which are the disproportionate pains of childbirth. You could build a worldview on that if you wanted to. Thank you for listening. If it wasn't too long. Thank you. Thank you. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can save up to 75% on the cover price. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Or you can unlock our entire online archive for free for 24 hours. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash open.